0: For people who think that all I do is read. I mean. You know, know, the only presents I get are books, which have helped me, you know. Some people think the only thing I do is read. So they just keep giving me book gifts. And that has kept me from illiteracy, so thank God. Uh, Colonel Garba, I disagree with your position on Angola. Who who, who said that? Me. Who are you? My name is Patu Torbi. I'm from the University of Nigeria. Seven.
1: We must have made a lot of enemies, though.
0: Are you kidding me? There many people who still want to bash my head. Into <laughs> <the day? laughs> you know? And
1: how did that happen, though? Did, they, did you just see, like, the armed forces at your gates one day and they're like, the vice president is looking for you? <laughs> no, actually, you know, the way it happened was. Like, Honestly, the name Henry, itself is, is Henry, such a Henry, vibe.
0: Enrique Fernando Cardoso. <laughs> I, I love him. You know. Okay, unless you are foolish like me. <laughs> I'm the only, only guy who can change the world up before, so don't worry about it. Oh my God! <laughs> just see that. <laughs> so I said to them, hey, You look do a macaque. You give me what I give you back, back, back. So after a while, they, they all just said, this, this guy is a bad man. Just leave him alone.
1: Okay, welcome back to my episodes, my regular episodes on Off The Record Podcast. It's your host, Tanana Bamichile. And today I'm really excited because I have the actual OG guest on today. (laughs) And I've been planning this for a long time. All of you know, I posted questions on my Instagram about it. And so, yes, I have the legendary Professor Pat Utomi here today. And we're going to do an episode on politics so this is supposed to be a call to action for the youth because a while ago I met Professor Patatomi and I had a conversation with him which kind of provoked me and inspired me to be more politically aware and I'm hoping the same happens after this episode. So yes, um, in case you don't know who Professor Patatomi is, um, which is, you're, you're probably living under a rock, but if you don't know who he is, he's a politician and he's also a political ec- economics and management expert. Um, amongst many things actually Because I was reading his biography And I was like okay what are the important things I want to take out And there was just so much and I was like you know what <laughs> When we get there Whatever he thinks to say will be fine because I can't even there's so, Do you know there are actually so many things If you check yourself for Wikipedia There's so many things I'm like yo Thank
0: god I don't check
1: <laughs> <laughs> Okay so yes um, I want you to introduce yourself And tell us about you okay. outside of Wikipedia
0: well, I'm part Tommy. I I like to think of myself as um, uh, one of those people who, by providence, got to be truly Nigerian, Nigerian. <laughs> Just by happenstance, uh, I was born in Kaduna on a an interesting day. The day. Uh, how did I get to being born in Kaduna? My family actually lived in Jos. Uh, it was still colonial Nigeria. So, early, early 1956, and um, uh, my, the Queen of England, this same queen that's still around, <laughs> you know, she was still a very young woman back then, uh, um, was visiting the colonies, and she was going to come to Kaduna on this day in February of 1956, and so people came from all over the um, region, the northern region as it was back then. Uh, to Kaduna to see the queen of England. <laughs> <laughs> and my mother was one of those people. And somehow pregnant. Pregnant. <laughs> and, and somehow uh, uh, anyway I think it was a plan for her to actually have me in Kaduna because um, um, my auntie lived in Kaduna and uh, so uh, it coincided with well, the kill two birds with one stone. But what it meant was I was only born, born in a hospital. Uh, she got uh, she went into labor from the crowd of waiting to see the what? queen, and so uh, just rushed to the house and <laughs> born
1: there.
0: <laughs> so uh, anyway, nice part of it. I remember when Prince Charles was visiting first time uh, he came with you uh, know still married to Diana. They came uh, he hosted a select group of people on the uh, Britannia, the yacht, the royal yacht Britannia, which was. Uh, moored on the marina and uh, the then british deputy commissioner jeremy Vakuer, uh, uh had told him the story and he told the story and, and prince charles said oh yeah yeah i wonder what has been inflicted on so many people who were born in these circumstances <laughs> yes, uh, interestingly enough when prince charles came back like what, two or three years ago uh um I asked him if he remembered the story, and he both started laughing, so, <laughs> I remember
1: the story. Uh, that's something that's really hard to forget. Yeah. I mean.
0: <laughs> and um, so, born in Kaduna, a few weeks, I guess, later, my mother moved back to Jos, where my father lived. I got baptized in Joss. My father actually worked for British Petroleum back in the 50s, and so he was transferred around the country. Uh, but primarily in the north at that time. So he was transferred to Maiduguri, And in Meduguri, um I grew up as an infant for maybe a year or two. And then my father was transferred to Kano. I started school in Kano in 1960, the year of independence. And um, then he was transferred under two years or so later to Guzo. Guzo is in what we call Zamfara State today, okay. and uh, most of my primary education then took place there. Then I went east, I started high school in Indonesia, Christ the King's College in Onisha. And then this war started, and I came west, and so the bulk of my secondary education was at Loyola College in Ibadan. Uh. And then I went back east to go to the University of Nigeria just as the Civil War was ending. And because I went abroad to the U.S. for grad school, uh, so I'm kind of like a global citizen of sorts. Yes, Uh, I agree. You know, uh, highlight of growing up, Um, essentially the fact that um, I thought I had um, the duty to be taken seriously as a young person by anybody, yeah. uh, and so I got into trouble challenging people who did things I did not like.
1: <laughs> you said you didn't even want to go to university. I remember no, you saying all, that, actually. which is shocking. Yeah,
0: <laughs> people who think that all I do is read.
1: I mean, you know, I believe...
0: <laughs> you know the only presents I get are books, which have <laughs> helped me. You know, some people think the only thing I do is read, so they just keep giving me book gifts. And that has kept me from illiteracy, so thank God. <laughs> uh, but, but really, uh, uh, truly, um, when I was young, uh, uh, growing up uh, between Lagos and Ibadan, the uh, thing that was happening back in those days, Nigeria Airways had just been founded, and they were recruiting young people as pilots. And so the hot thing to be was a pilot. Was a pilot. So <laughs> I wanted to go to flying school, and that one of my very best friends, went off took the West African school certificate exam in December we used to take it in December back in those days Um, by February without the results results had not come he set out to the US to go to flying school in Florida and by November he was back in Nigeria qualified commercial pilot and having a great time
1: (laughs) (laughs) he was (laughs) a (laughs) baller
0: So I was always in his company. So, what, what did you think I would want to do you know, with life? Be a pilot? Obviously, my father had clever games to play with me that made me commit to going to university just for a year or two to make friends before going to flying
1: school. So imagine imagine <laughs> your father selling uni to his son and he's like, don't worry, you're not going there for anything serious, just, just friends. Just, just so you just make, make friends. friends. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Because the best friends in life are those you make in the uni. Oh, so my. So you go there, make a couple of friends, and then go off to flying school. I agree with him. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, when I got to the university, some dramatic thing, I had to volunteer to help out uh, uh, just to keep the library open. So um, since I was the only one willing to volunteer, I was handed the key of the library, department's library. And the sense of duty, of course, overcame me. Because the only way people could use the library was if I showed up. So I began to show up all the time. And since there was not much to do if you are going to keep a library open, just books. So (laughs) I began to read those books. So instead of going to flying school, I went straight to graduate school. The very day you school ended. Wow. So everything has its... uh,
1: Purpose. (laughs) Yeah. That's cool. I think the part that stunned me the last time we spoke was about how you had done so much at such a young age and it's like yo how did you I get how you got into it but then you were doing such big things I feel like a lot of youths are doing so much because mm. right now at this stage there's so much pressure to do so much when you're young mm. but then not at the scale at which you were doing it back then
0: well I actually didn't, didn't think of it as a significant scale it was just matter of fact for me I mean,
1: um, first and foremost, I challenged
0: the system okay. from undergraduate days. Uh, of course, I, I first got national attention as a seventeen-year-old uh, with organizing student revolts against the establishment mm, at seventeen.
1: A rebel. Yeah, I was
0: a rebel <laughs> from get-go. Uh, I, I often tell the story of how I. Remembered my 18th birthday. (laughs) Uh, It's a famous story of how we're planning all these demonstrations because police had killed a student in Baden, a gentleman called Kunle Adikweju. And um, so we're so deep in the organizing on this morning of the 6th of February 1974 as we got on the streets and, uh, you know, Pitch battle between groups of students who didn't want us to get involved and those who wanted to be involved. Uh, eventually, Vice Chancellor intervened. We were asked to call a rally for 8 for 8 o'clock in the night. So, about 8 30, somebody was giving a speech and said, Today, 6th of February, 1974, will be remembered. And I said, Oh my God, it's my birthday. <laughs> it's my birthday. At 8 30 p.m., all day, never you were busy fighting. So, so I started there. Um, at 19, I was in the Student Union Cabinet, and I was the one who was insisting that no major national policy should take place without student input. And back in those days, the uh, hot, hot subject was a uh, deliberation. In southern africa because there was still colonization going on at so the, time. At the time yes so um i challenged the foreign minister to come and explain um the reasons for the choices nigeria was making in foreign policy <laughs> and of course
1: uh, a of, bold they, move
0: they kind of in- ignored my letter <laughs> and i thought nobody should ignore me <laughs> so i Got in a bus, I guess, came to Lagos, went to the foreign minister's office. Oh no. Oh, <laughs> and the secretary kind of looked at me and said, What did you say? I said, I wrote to the foreign minister, I've not had a reply. <laughs> said, really? Where When you say you're from? Who said, are you again? <laughs> so when I saw that I wasn't getting anywhere with that, I uh, kind of went downstairs and asked the concierge when they. Prime Minister would show up. And as I was still asking him, the motorcade pulled up. And I stepped out. <laughs> and this Colonel, who was, I think, captain of the German basketball team, he looked like he was 10 feet tall, but actually he was probably 6 feet, something <laughs> tall. But we understood thought he was that tall. You know, uh, uh, elegant, you know, brigade of Guards commander with his brigade of Guard you. <laughs> And I stepped out and said, um, Colonel Garba, I disagree with your position on Angola. I said, huh? who, who, who said that? <laughs> me. I said, who are you? Said, My name is Pat Utomi. I'm from the University of Nigeria. Wow. So why? Yeah, said, well, we began a debate and we continued talking. Got in the elevator, debate, got out of the elevator, walked past the secretary that bounced me.
1: I'm sure she's like this, this, this man, <laughs> this man. Yeah, where did he
0: show up from? Like, what? how did he get what? here now? So I got into his office and he shouted at her to come immediately. <laughs> he said, "Go and get me Ambassador Dede, Ambassador Brownson Dede." That was his essay. And uh when uh, Ambassador Dede came in, he said, "Brownson, I'm going to Sokar to debate these boys." <laughs> <laughs>
1: He must have been so provoked.
0: I guess so. (laughs) Interestingly, we became lifelong friends. Um, While I was working on my PhD uh, uh, in the US, he was um, a fellow at Harvard. And um, I called him one afternoon to check out some of the stuff I was writing about. We were talking on the phone. He shouted, Ah, it's over. I said, What? The end of the Falklands War. When Britain and Argentina went to war over the Falklands, oh. So he was watching TV while we were talking. I was in the library or somewhere. <laughs> and, uh, you yeah. know, so that friendship continued until we unfortunately lost him yeah. some years ago. You
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, know that's how you got into that space and you kept it cha- and after that you just kept challenging and just kept challenging
0: as a youth copper i um uh, essentially cost the cabinet reshuffle from the things i wrote and forced the departure of some people from the cabinet was back in 1977. you must have made a lot of enemies though are you kidding me there are many people who still want to bash my head <laughs> <into> the- <laughs> you know and you know when you are young and fearless, as they say. <laughs> the, the, I think there's a superpower in America that says the young and fearless or it's restless. restless. It's oh, young forever. and restless. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, um, I, I just kept going with no ill <laughs> intention. I just... You were just wrong. doing your yeah, thing. And yeah, some people were... Losing their jobs. Know. So, um, you know, it also added to the so-called put on quote equipment and as a youth copper a publisher one of the perhaps the most important uh, most regarded news magazine in the country at the time new bridge gentleman called chris cooley was a publisher and he would come in and he would begin to scream at all these editors who left university the year i was born and say to them how can it be that it's only this fellow who can get the assignment that i want done the way i want it blah blah, blah. You know, immediately after I finished youth school, same day, I jumped on a plane to go to grad school. And I came into the country. I don't know if my father passed or something. I came into the country, and I saw him. He said, he's in the country for a few weeks. Come on. Start work, start work. (laughs) yeah, a few weeks. He appointed me editor of the magazine. Wow. And so I was editor of a magazine at age 23. Yes, you know, so I began to get responsibility, opportunity to lead people at a pretty young age, 23.
1: Yeah.
0: I was editor. And, um, because by 26 I'd finished my PhD and I finished two master's degrees. Uh, wow. At that time. Uh, then I came home. I left the U.S. the same day my PhD thesis was accepted.
1: Why did you keep coming home, though? Why didn't you just ever sit down and be like, "Yeah, I'm done with Nigeria. I'm staying." I,
0: to be frank with you, I couldn't give you a rational reason. I just never thought of the alternative. It was really? just
1: always Nigeria. Yeah.
0: It was just I, I was just there to quickly get this education and come back. <laughs> and I left, like I said, the day my PhD thesis was accepted. And I returned, and a few weeks later. Um, I'd written a series of articles on tax policy, you know. And the vice president was, I mean, literally enthralled by the logic of it, whatever, you know. And uh, said to some friends, ah, you know, I wish I could uh, get hold of this guy, interesting guy, you know. What's his wish? Come find him. Indeed, they found me.
1: How did that happen, though? Did did you just see, like, the armed forces at your gates one day and they're like, the vice president is looking for you?
0: Actually, you know, the way it happened was very... One of the people who was at the meeting where the thing came up uh, had a staff person who had been my schoolmate.
1: Ah, at the okay. university,
0: And he was the one who said, Oh, I'll fetch it. So he came and said, Look, this person wants to see you as well, oh, really.
1: Were you excited? Were you nervous? Or were you just like, oh, Okay, let's go?
0: Everything was a matter of fact. You know, one of the beauties of, of how we grew up in this country, sadly, I don't mm-hmm. know, that, but it's quite much like that. As a youth copper, as I mentioned, a reporter, I'd reached a level. Of friendship with the number two citizen at the time in Nigeria, uh, Shehu Yaradua, was the deputy to Obasanjo. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I shared many moments with him, talking about issues. So I was very relaxed with power. I, didn't, I was not faced by power. Or yeah. But I said, so these things never really uh, got to you. No. So, and this advice wanted to see me. In fact, to make matters even worse. Uh, He wanted some uh, depth of understanding of the issues on what I call horizontal and vertical equity taxation. And the fact that Nigeria was actually not taxing its people because they were taking money from oil and disconnecting the people from society. Because when you pay taxes, that you hold people accountable for their behavior in office. But Nigeria was just taking oil money, not bothering people to pay taxes, so people were not bothering them. Yeah. So there was a disconnect between state and society. And so he wanted to explore how that could be uh, dealt with, so um, he wondered if I could do him some position papers on the subject, and I very, uh, what the right word to use now? Uh, I was just trying to be funny, but you know, cocky, <laughs> precocious, whatever it is. And I said, well, I'm a consultant, you know. If you pay, <laughs> if you're paying, I'm working. <laughs> one one of his friends, uh, uh Chief um Chief cuckoo. Who, who was with Him? He said, my friend, vice president asking you to do. I'm telling you, 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 you in the whole vice president. How much? How much is your <laughs> <Alawi>? consultancy?
1: <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> You but were billing the vice president I at 23.
0: I, d- I didn't even have. Uh, no, I just said I was 26, 27. Okay. 27. Uh, uh, I didn't even have a clue what what to charge. I just said it to be, <laughs> you know, I mean, I had to say something. So. So the, the chief said, okay, after after you follow me to my house, let me find out how much this is your your bill, this your,
1: is your bill consultancy is. fee. So. Uh,
0: promised the vice president I would have it done. And so went to Chief Cuckoo's house, which wasn't too far from the vice president's residence. that's from Ikuikri sent to Bayo Cuckoo uh, Drive or Road or whatever it is. In just, Iko-I just uh, three minutes drive to Chief said. <laughs> So how much is this or this thing? And I had to come up with something to say. Because <laughs> I had not given any, any thought to anything. You know, just Joking. (laughs) So I thought, okay, what should somebody charge for this kind of thing? (laughs) A Volkswagen Beetle, I think, cost about a thousand naira or something like that. Wow. A car, yes. I mean, middle class cars, middle. Not to be typical, middle class car like a a Camry today. Say, back in the days, it would probably cost like three, four thousand naira. Wow. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Wow, no, yeah, I don't true. even know if we're getting. Do you think we're getting worse? Cause
0: what? What? Anyway, <laughs> we live what we live. So I kind of said, oh oh, one thousand naira would be good. So I said, ah, yeah, like one thousand naira. He said to me, is that all? So? One thousand naira. That's all this noise you're making. <laughs> that's why you're
1: making
0: noise. So <laughs> he just went to his bedroom, came out, and gave me ten thousand naira. Oh
1: wow! And
0: he says, and when you run out, you can come back. <laughs> <laughs> Well, ah yeah giving me that kind of money I got back I said I must finish writing this thing this night. <laughs> my friend who worked for the man said I do what? I said I can I finish it this night? Said, if you finish it this night, they will think it's easy. Oh even take if you your finish time. This night, keep it for
1: one week. <laughs> After one week we'll go and give it to them. So they would think you've done a lot of work. Oh my <laughs> <laughs> that was very calculating. Oh. He knew how to
0: play the game. <laughs> I must it give was, him that. He was the staff, uh-huh. working for Chief So he
1: knew. He knew what the game
0: was. He yeah. can't make it
1: look easy. Yeah, well,
0: wow. Mm, <laughs> but anyway, so that's that's how that space uh, developed. Mm. And two weeks later, Vice President sends for me, and then very casually says to me. And because of conversation, so by the way, President Shehu Shagari uh, approved yesterday for you to replace Professor Odeniwe. Professor Odeniwe's advice on, oh my goodness, it was my teacher at the <laughs> university.
1: No they, way. So I said,
0: why? <laughs> that was the only thing I could think of. So I said, why? Why? And uh, wonderful woman. She's still very much around, mm-hmm. Mrs. Omobola um, Uh literally became my foster mother in the system, you know. She said, Anujide, you know, I thought we were talking to you. Just keep saying, this boy is so smart. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, uh, um, this is, uh, Anogide, uh, 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 no, so, so I said, "No, can I think about it? She said, said, like, Vice President, please, don't mind him. Yeah, she's thinking about it. <laughs> I said, no, I want to go. So I said, okay, go and think about it. So, I went away, and drove back to right where I lived on at that time. My family didn't even have a house. I was just coming back from grad school, where the family played on house. I was, I was there. So, I saw a friend of mine from next door, two doors away. I said, ah, can't believe what has just happened. I said, as president said that, president has approved for me to replace Professor Daily. wick so I told you I want to think about it. Say, what did you tell you? I said I want to go and think about it.
1: Were you actually not sure whether you wanted to take it? Like, were you actually thinking like, should I, should I not? Was that even a question? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. You see, uh,
0: again, getting back more seriously, I, I had a plan. Yeah. Um, one of the influences. Of the library at UNN on me because I read all kinds of stuff. Yes. So uh, one of those early readings was Stephen Covey, Stephen R. Covey.
1: Yeah.
0: And uh, and so by the time I was leaving university, I had a personal vision statement. I had a personal mission statement. I literally had my life visioned. And when I was leaving the U.S., Um, There was a very young man, uh, who was 33 at the time, Uh, was appointed by the new president at that time, Ronald Reagan, was elected in 1980, and his name was David Stockman. David Stockman was appointed Director of Budget, Cabinet rank Position at 33. And I kind of use him as bench- benchmark. I wanted to be director of budget for Nigeria at 33. Mm-hmm. So was what I said to myself, I would go, up. mind, I was now 27. So a good six, seven year plan to make director of budget.
1: Yeah.
0: And then suddenly, I was being given a, an equivalent position. Yes. Seven years ahead of schedule, <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, uh, okay, I need to think about this thing. Does it make you work out if it's accelerating my pace more than I planned? Uh, so, yes, I actually wanted to think about it. But, of course, my friend and others, just bit up for me. And my friend, go back and tell him, uh, <laughs> accept everything. Anyway, but...
1: Then you became the advisor to the right. president. And then... Uh, before even 30 wow yes. yeah. <laughs> you know on a normal day i'm already i'm 20 which i don't tell lots of people because i want them to take me seriously mm-hmm. but <laughs> i always feel like i haven't done enough like there's so much to do so it makes me have this pressure of, like i'm doing so much at the same time and I'm constantly still feeling like I'm not doing enough. And then, now I'm meeting you and hearing all this, and I'm like, no, yeah, you're definitely not doing enough. Keep keep working.
0: <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, it's not how fast, how... Uh, it's about how well.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, um, I mean, there are many people who start out, go like a rocket, and then burn out.
1: That's. Even, I think that's terrible. Yeah,
0: but that is happened to many people. Uh, um, I think that if If there is anything that I have a lot of gratitude for, very, very thankful to God for, is that I have stayed paced in spite of what seemed like a jump out, early, you know, goal. Yeah. Um, See, when the Kudita came and I left the position, I was in some ways very grateful. Uh, of course there were things to to, to regret, uh, for example what was more or less happening uh, the time that I was brought into government was the vice president at the time, Dr. Alex Kweme, was trying to build a team of very bright younger people around himself.
1: Yeah.
0: He was going to run for president in 1987. Um, so the choice he made was to have me as the highest appointee that came from him yeah. and so I had to be an appointment by the president not vice president's appointee but he also from direct vice president appointee had a couple of very bright young PhDs that had just come from the US and elsewhere and so technically I was head of the pack
1: yeah.
0: now you could project that if things had gone as expected, if the army had not intervened, I probably would have been chief of staff for the president at age 31. Yeah. Uh, You know, kind of like nice going compared to the David Stockman deal. Way nice. (laughs) (laughs) uh, So there was that bit to to, uh, regret. But I was also a little worried about what I saw of why government was sort of dysfunctional uh, um, in terms of the way that interagency rivalries got in the way of getting things done, uh, the way that power was played inside. I mean, give you a really interesting example. And I'm not reading most of these stories actually, I hope I'll be able to write memoirs that will capture most of what I experienced.
1: You should. Um,
0: President Shigari had named Chief Mekanyoku, the same Chief Mekanyoku as Foreign Minister, who was then Deputy Secretary General of the Commonwealth. He named Ambassador Ralph Wichwe as Minister of Health. And because um, they were known to have been vice presidents' nominees, so to speak, for the president's appointments, but that maybe the vice president influenced their nomination, some opponents of the vice presidents uh, in the National Assembly just wanted to embarrass them by refusing to uh, kind of um, uh, um, confirm their appointments on the first round. Um, the job of managing that whole thing was given to me. So uh, you can imagine how interesting it what was this 27 year old being you know, asked to manage this issue. The vice president actually went off on vacation. Uh, within the country, he went on vacation to a place called Gimbu, up in the highlands near Cameroon,
1: okay.
0: uh, and all of that and um he, i mean nobody thought they would go as far as they tried to go so when things were getting out of hand i had to reach him and i got to Makrodi, and um, according to him, some people it and in during some times in the year you couldn't go up to the manbilla plateau by road it was impossible the roads were so bad and all that. so the only way to get there was a the helicopter Wow. So I got into Makudi and uh, there was no Air Force helicopter available. So in the end, I ran to Lagos without reaching the Vice President, and we had to do what we had to do uh, to manage the problem. Any cool thing got started anyway, yeah. But I learned enough lessons about the games of power. That i said to myself not being able to play the game of power well enough could make a well-intentioned person not achieve their goal
1: very true i was going to ask something about that actually
0: yeah and one of the decisions i made then was that i was never going to accept public office unless there was enough of a committed team to ensure that you can succeed. No one person can do it by himself. Uh-huh. So this was behind, and people sometimes ask me, they know that I've turned down cabinet invitations. And they go, what's wrong with you? Who turns down a cabinet appointment? <laughs> and I, this was what the case was. In fact, the, the last time it was uh, President Yaradua, Just before he took ill and died, who invited me in for a conversation? It was a Friday afternoon. I still remember very clearly. David Davier was chief of staff. I went to the president's office and he was in a meeting with um, the economic team. Um, I remember uh, Remy Babalola, who was minister in finance at the time with Steve Oransa and uh, Eze, Engineer Eze and due process and go. Co- emerging from the president's office. And the president walks out and comes to me and says, Hey, good to see you. I want our conversation to be, you know, long and deep. Maybe we should just go to the residence, you know, close for the day and go to the residence and, and talk. Anyway, it um, ended up in a really long conversation because when we got there, he said to me, look, what's, uh, what's the problem with Nigeria? <laughs> he said,
1: um,
0: good question. I said, I'm, I'm sure you know that's not a, question, a good <laughs> question to ask me because that's a six-hour answer. He says, go ahead, I have all the time. I know we are going, I'm listening to you. And I did go on for more than two hours, and he oh, was wow. listening. He didn't fall asleep, he didn't uh, sound, he didn't look bored or anything like that.
1: Yeah.
0: So when I finished, as the Yaradua said, you see, that's why they say that people understand Nigeria as well as you, and what I can figure out is why you think you can fix it from outside. True. And I said, well, I don't necessarily say I can fix it from outside, but I'd rather be doing my best from outside. If I cannot be sure that inside is serious enough to fix it, yeah, he said, but we are dead serious. I can assure you, you know, here I am asking you to come inside. Let's together fix this problem. I said. So I,
1: Nigeria's problem it didn't just start today, oh, sure. Oh yeah,
0: it's been around for a bit. <laughs> so I said to him, look, okay, um, truth of the matter, fortunately, unfortunately for me, I studied too much a little bit, <laughs> so. Let me put on my political science cap now. A state in post-colonial Africa is one in which um, the cooperative state incorporates voices of dissent. So they bring you in, you up a minister, and then they really, as an insider, you can't, you know, bug the establishment. They expose you badly and they destroy you literally. I said, I, I don't want that to my faith. So I'd rather just say, I want to assure you that I'm a patriot. You can call me at 2 AM, 3 AM, every time, and you will get the full benefit of my advice without prejudice. Uh, I said, yeah, still not as good as being inside, being the one getting it done. I mean, President Erdogan engaged me for uh, quite a bit. And um, then he said, uh, uh, and then, I, then I said to him, I said, well, it's a matter of critical mass. Uh, just uh, I'm not saying that I have anything against being in, in government, but if I'm going to be there, I'm going to need a critical mass. So, like, what is critical mass? I said, if you could bring in seven good people into the cabinet and I join them, you can give all these funny ministries where they has plenty of money to <laughs> give contracts to your party people that want to share. But seven serious ministries that set the tone of the country find the right people. I will come with them. I say, okay. Why don't we make it easier? I said, how? I say, Why don't you
1: Find the people. Give me the. (laughs) Let's not walk too much. Imagine if he brings seven and you're like, no, 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 these two not good enough. (laughs) So So he's like, you do that.
0: So I said, ah, okay, but I can't just sit here and write seven names. I have to think about it. Okay, fine. Yeah. He can go back to Lagos, spend the weekend, reflect it, and send me seven good names next week. Ah, funny thing, I. Came to Lagos, reflected, picked seven bundles from across the country, and came into Abuja and gave them to somebody working with the president to give him. Um, I went to mass the morning after.
1: Oh yeah, Catholic. I'm
0: Catholic at the nunciature, the papal nuncio uh, in Abuja. And so after mass, I was like "Staying with my prayers. And somebody tapped me behind and I looked up. And it was the late Professor Dora Akunili. And he said, she said to me, Ibu, come outside, come outside, come outside. <laughs> I said, oh, boy. But I, Dora, Dora and I were classmates. We went to UNN the same day.
1: Oh. Uh,
0: so. Um, came outside. And she said to me, give him one. I said, what have I done? I said, Why did you turn down the president? I said, who said I turned down the president? How do you know I met the president? I said, ah, is are many and I who were conspiring to fix all of these things? I said, ah. but I didn't do any such thing. Said, the president asked some things from me and I promised to get back to him. I didn't tell her. The details but of I, it. Yes, it is not. Tell. Years later, somebody who should know better uh, I was telling the story, and the person said, You know, the president went to his death th- thinking you snubbed him.
1: Huh?
0: They didn't give him that list.
1: Oh, my days.
0: Yeah. And on my part, I thought that he chose not to appoint those people because amongst those on the list was Nasir to Fai, and I knew they didn't get along well. But indeed, as it turned out, he just never got the list, and he didn't think that I sent him the list.
1: Wow. What?
0: But, <laughs> there you know, will
1: always be people that don't want things to work. Yeah,
0: that's, that's the thing. This very powerful person who was uh, uh, saying these things to me said, I can tell you just that person you say you gave it to and you
1: I knew it wouldn't get there (laughs) from that person it wasn't going to get to the owner wow (laughs) wow that's actually a lot but okay now that we have some background let's get into the questions that people actually sent in so we don't waste your time too much as a very busy man that you are So the first question that caught my attention is, is there still hope for Nigeria?
0: (laughs) Yes, there is. I mean, there are many people who are very pessimistic about the future of Nigeria. Understandably so, Understandably, absolutely. I mean, uh, it takes some extraordinary background to be hopeful. Uh, First of all, as a Christian, I could never despair. I mean, that is the ultimate sin. Sin against the Holy Spirit, because you must believe that uh, God is able. Yeah. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, I have seen countries come from worse. Yeah. That's what really encourages me. I tell the story all the time, of course, of how I became. So my, at, at first, I was a Latin Americanist. Back in the late 70s, the core of my academic interest was. Uh, modernization and development in Latin America. And I obviously was one of the early, uh, uh, um, one of my early uh, followers was uh, Raul Prebisch, who was the Economic Commission for Latin America Executive Secretary and the author of the thesis that we generally know of as Impulse of Industrialization. And then there was the Argentine, uh, Prabhish was Argentine actually, too, also. Uh, the Argentine uh, scholar Guillermo Donnell and the whole idea of bureaucratic authoritarianism and you know modernizing coalitions in Latin America. So I was very excited about Latin America. Then they just failed to make progress. By the 80s, I was so upset I just switched all my academic interests to Southeast Asia. And then. Famous story I've told and told again my encounter with um, Enrique Fernando Cardoso. Cardoso was uh, also at ECLA. He typically was the father of dependency theory. This is a thesis in international political economy uh, in which uh, the blame for underdevelopment is put on the Western industrialized economies in the structural dependency that permanently underdevelops the southern country. Uh, I mean amongst his, some of his close collaborators were people like Osvaldo Sonkel and others who argued for selective delinking from international capitalism. So just cut off from international capital. I was not a fan of autarky. And I always wondered about dependency theory. And I thought, okay, this is elegant theorizing with no redemptive value for the people. And um, like I say, a very interesting journey and story um, for Cardoso. Because Cardoso returns from exile in Chile to Brazil, ends up as foreign minister. Then one day, while in New York, the President calls him and asks him how would you like to be uh, Minister of Finance? Now, at that time, things were so bad in Brazil that the average lifespan or the average span of tenure of the Economic and Finance Minister was a couple of months, so so probably maybe a few weeks. Things would just get worse, everybody would blame the finance minister, and then he'll be fired. So when he was given this offer, he thought, who can hit me this much, you know? (laughs) But what he said to the president was, uh, look, we're about to make a major speech here at the UN. Uh, Why don't we talk tomorrow? So after his speech, he gets back to his hotel for rings and his wife. Mm. And the wife says to him, how could you says do what? How could you <laughs> how could you accept the finance minister? She says, I didn't do any sort of thing. I said, you didn't? It's already been announced. You are uh, a new finance minister. Can you imagine?
1: <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine?
0: Anyway, but the big lesson here is that Fernando Cardoso, who I really loved as a student, at least for the pronunciation of his name, I used to like
1: Honestly, the name en- itself is, is en- such a en- vibe.
0: Enrique Fernando Cardoso. <laughs> I, I love him. You know, as a grad student, I used to like Cardoso around the class, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, um, Cardoso decides on that flight, because I would meet him later and he would tell this story. That he decides on that flight back to um, Brasilia from New York that he would take the job and that he would not like his own ideas to decide what happens but he would like the brightest young people in Brazil, young economists, to get together quarrel over what direction they should take
1: and, decision. And,
0: and he would support them yeah brought inflation to a crisis stop. Wow. growth resumes in the choices they made Enrique Fernando Cardoso had committed intellectual suicide because the choices those young economists made essentially repudiated the whole dependency thesis uh, and uh, just like I had said you know years before um, Brazil turned to globalization Brazil prospered. Of course, everybody said, <laughs> okay, finance minister, he must come as president. And he became president of Brazil and did a pretty good job of it and was succeeded by an interesting trade unionist called Ignacio Lula da Silva. Today, Brazil is what? Sixth, seventh largest economy in the world. So, if it can happen to Brazil, it can happen to Nigeria. Nigeria. These are the things that give me
1: Mm. I hope everybody has hope the way you do, Mm. honestly, because I think when you see the news, you're just like, you're disheartened all over again. Yeah, Yeah, you're just like, no, really, what are we doing? But I think, um, from what I have been seeing, like around from the people around me and on my social media, people are trying to be active in politics and trying to be involved. Which leads me to the question, like, okay, so what can the youths do to make Nigeria a better place? What role can we play? Because now, in the case of Brazil, it was these young economists that really did something for the nation.
0: Hey, look, it's the youth that are holding Nigeria up right now, actually. You don't know it. They may call you all kinds of things lazy and whatever, whatever. It's the youth that are holding up this economy. Look at the tech space. I mean, just before you entered my office, I had a bunch of these techies... Uh, uh here uh there's uh pesa labs this you know uh you know and stuff like that uh and i get excited when i see them i just yesterday i was speaking at the university of lagos event and the vice chancellor all of them there i think they they were really stunned by uh, some of the things i said <laughs> then, you know what How many of you here? Tell me, who is the biggest financial institution in Nigeria? And I said, Look, I asked a class that uh, the day before. First bank, Zenith Bank. Uh, I said to them, You look do a (laughs) (laughs) Mokokon. Biggest, of course, a small company, not a small company, a a young company, started a couple of years ago called Front
1: Yeah.
0: Five, get first bank and Janet bank and all of that. Um, and I, most of these banks will be dinosaurs ten years from now. Yeah. Complete dinosaurs. If you look at the projections, probably going to be some four billion dollars or so coming into Africa's tax base this year. Wow.
1: Well, you know, fifty seen something this thing.
0: to seventy percent. To
1: Nigeria. I've been saying this, I want to be a tech babe. Everybody mm. is not taking me seriously because I'm not really tech inclined. But I've said this: once I finish my work here, I want to become a tech babe. But I can't do tech, so I'll be a HR it, it, girl it, it in tech. You don't mm-hmm. have
0: to be a techie to to eat tech the money.
1: Technology. I don't want to transform. I want to eat tech money. <laughs> okay. Look, Four uh, billion dollars. <laughs> it's not
0: about eating; it's about creating value. True, the very good. makes rich is not wanting to be rich, it's yeah. about wanting to change the world. Yeah. And it changed the world so well, you can't be mm-hmm. Okay, unless you are foolish like me. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> the guy who, I'm the only guy who can change the world, i so don't worry about it. Oh my dear, <laughs> just see <do> that. <laughs> so, um, and, and so, a of young people in tech and all kinds, yeah. uh, that they are really the ones with nollywood, with music, and everyone's holding up this economy. Yeah, uh, It's not oil. Oil is a rubber albatross are going through an energy transition and we don't even know how to manage it. Uh, so, um, I believe in the young people of this country, they should sell themselves short. They've done well so far, they can do better. I'd like to tell the story of, again, the Reagan Revolution. When I left the U.S., uh, when I was leaving the U.S., things were very bad. Uh, Jimmy Carter, nice man, was president, but the economy was traveling so far south, inflation was 29%, Japanese companies were all overtaking uh, these big American giants, you know, and then catalyzes the election. Reagan comes along, unleashes the American spirit, and the youth of America rise to occasion. On campus, when I lived there, it used to be like, oh, it's March. Seniors are writing their CVs, going for interviews for jobs that were not there. I go back a few years later. It's March, April. Seniors are not writing their CVs, they are working on their business plans. Yeah. And hoping to become billionaires before the 26th birthday. <laughs> I think the youth of Nigeria will do that, and I think they will liberate this country. But a few things about what they can do to build institutions that will facilitate progress. First of all, they should stop abusing each other. With, uh, <laughs> there's no point in it civility is a very important see values shape human progress
1: yeah
0: Okay. Uh, so you gotta be civil second you gotta make an effort to be more broadly thoughtful not that she receives some point of view you need to abuse everybody else who does not share that point, point of, of view. view democracy is about rational public conversation um the ultimate philosopher of modernity and democracy is a German uh, is it the ultimate philosopher of um, democracy and modernity um, uh, is um, a, a, a German who very old now but is at Harvard now um, and um one of the points he likes to make is that central to uh, his name is Jorgen Hebermatz central to modernity and democracy is rational public conversation that's part of what young people are not having in Nigeria, rational public conversation and very talented young people Too emotional (laughs) and abusing each other rather than thinking rationally. And we could make a lot of progress if they did so. Yeah.
1: Okay. So now the next question the next question would be Do our votes really count? Because in a democracy, the most important part we would like to think is actually participating and voting and going out there. But then lots of people, there's a lot of political apathy amongst the youth because they think, like, do our votes even count? Mm. But then I also think about it that if they didn't count, they wouldn't be stealing ballot boxes Absolutely. and all those other things. Absolutely. But then there's also a lot of rigging. So, sure. I mean, I get the question. Does it really mm. count?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Look, um, votes matter. Yeah. Uh, is there an effort to make them not count, yes. When I mean, Nigerian politicians of the traditional AOC don't want you to vote, they just want power. They don't, because a vote means that they are accountable to you. Yeah. So they don't care about. They just want to do four or nine <laughs> if they can manage it, for nothing them to hold the power. Uh, but you have the capacity to stop them without even taking huge risks. Which is what people fear. Oh, go out to vote, violence, this is not. Yeah, some of that. But not enough to make you suffer from allowing them to get away with mothers, getting away with mothers they're getting uh, right now. Look, let me take the governor of Lagos. The claim is that about 25 million of us who live in Lagos, right?
1: Yeah.
0: How many people voted for the governor in the last election? 400 and something thousand people made him governor. Ooh. Yep. That's,
1: is, that's not even up to a quarter. <laughs> that's not even. <laughs> that. Wow. Okay.
0: So, what it tells you is that if you just manage to register every student in Lagos yeah, that is 18 and they vote, you will determine who is the governor of Lagos.
1: The governor would actually represent the interests of the people.
0: So, uh, are they going to try and. Uh, manipulate votes, yes, they're going to try. But if it was just a matter of writing numbers, they wouldn't write 400 and something thousand. They would just write <laughs> 20 million. <laughs> but there is a process. And that process is such that they can create, you know,
1: loopholes here
0: and there, there print a few thousand, do a few small things there, but really, really, your votes count. And that's why everybody must register. Have that voter's card and make the effort. You'll be shocked what you can achieve. And I, I tell a story from Kano about a teacher, a simple teacher who was humiliated by the governor. And students asked him to run. And he said, Mike, where hmm. will I find money to run against an incumbent governor, until a politician Laid my tamasule, said, saw him one day and said, "Ah, I hear that you are a coward, a coward? Not, coward, coward. <laughs> Why? I'm not a coward, sir. He said, I said uh, I say you, you, you run, you say you can't run, that you don't have money. Who told you it's money that wins election? Yeah. That's how he got in the race. Cut the long story short, the youth supported him, police the." Uh, police stations, police, the materials coming from Central Bank and they beat the incumbent governor by 400,000 votes. Whoa. And his name is Ibrahim Shekarau. So, I think these things are possible.
1: Yeah. I think, I think that's a bit encouraging then. That's a bit encouraging. Now, for more personal questions that people ask. so Do, do, you, um, do you think being born privileged gave you an advantage in your progression in your career?
0: Who said I was born privileged? I don't know. <laughs>
1: Probably people just assume. People assume a lot of things.
0: I was a, a, a rugged kid who woke up at 5 a.m. to ride the bicycle to go and serve mass in the morning <laughs> at age 7, 8, 9. Yeah,
1: you said you were an altar boy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> age 7, 8, 9, I was doing that every morning. Uh, so, is that a privileged child? <laughs> uh, no, my father was a lower middle class, middle class person at some point. Uh, uh, but I was, it was no privilege at all to, to, uh, that I was oldest of seven children.
1: Seven? Yeah. Whoa. You know, people used to give birth a lot that year. Like, why were people having so many children? Seven,
0: seven is not a lot. My uncle had, uh, 13 from one wife. Eh? One wife has 13 and then two or three others from Adventures.
1: <laughs> what? How do you even manage that many children? Like how? Do you, would you even be able to have a working relationship with each and every of those children? Oh, my
0: father had. And people who had more, I mean, we were considered a standard number. <laughs> Someone was very standard in those days. Uh, so, not a problem at all. Yeah. Actually, the, sometimes the bigger families were more cohesive. Than the ones that were fifteen, sixteen, <laughs> twenty. Everybody Whoa. helped each other.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: so, so there was no.
1: You weren't born silver with spoon, silver
0: spoon. Not at all. <laughs> I mean, I I am thankful I didn't struggle for food. Yeah. But I was not a child of privilege at all. Yeah.
1: Okay, so now this is one question that I personally wanted to know. Did you ever get offended when people would call you a bourgeoisie apologist? And how did that even start?
0: No, oh, was was that was, uh, that was I, I didn't even get anywhere near offended by that. What happened was, uh, when I first came back from the U.S., uh, the dominant strain in Nigerian academia was, you know, Marxism was very hot back in the area. <laughs> The way you proved that you were smart was to declare yourself a Marxist, Marxist. <laughs> and begin to blam blast and lambast. and and I just looked at them and said, "I uh, read a piece in one of the journals in the U.S. Uh, Marxism: the Apologetics of Power. Mm. Uh, people looking for shortcuts to power, use Marxism to
1: climb. Up. Show
0: that they were with the people and all of that. <laughs> and I, in fact." <laughs> I get people who come back to me and say, you know, it's interesting, you look back now 40 years, you were more Marxist than all those guys who called you
1: Thinking about it, because if you look at everybody now...
0: I have shown more care for ordinary people than all of those guys yeah. who called me names. Uh, and I, I was brought up as a simple Christian boy who was thought that being your brother's keeper being that good Samaritan was the purpose of being so I cared for people I mean, first thing I did when I came back to Nigeria was again, providence, circumstance found a widow so I found a man who was dying saying to his wife, I'm sorry that my brothers are already fighting for my property while I'm still alive you know, if I die, they will probably kill you if you fight my property with them and this woman went from being in a six seven bedroom mansion to being homeless literally and i said no this is injustice that's how i began working on a program to support poor widows yeah and i've done it since 1983. Whoa. today we have several hundred widows in the program i run into kids that say that they went to school because of me and i said hey, how <laughs> that their mother was a widow. I said, "Oh, really?" And you know, stuff like that. Those my Marxist friends <laughs> didn't do those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, but it was convenient for them, because ideologically I was opposed to Marxism, because I thought it was not a productive ideology. Yeah. Doesn't produce like a different enterprise system produces. Uh, uh, one of the more interesting things. Well, the person who actually first called me bourgeois apologist Was now chairman of PDP. (laughs) 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 Dr. Ayu was one of those great Marxist scholars at the University of Joss, and I was invited to debate him in Joss, 1983. Of course, as I kept marshaling my points, he got so frustrated. He said, My friend, I bourgeois (laughs) apologies. And then, well, guess what? A couple of years later, uh, because we're friendly, it was not a personal.
1: Yeah.
0: A couple of years later in the Oba- babangida transition, Yachia you become Senate president.
1: <laughs> At
0: that time I am managing a multinational company called Volkswagen.
1: Wow. Yeah, I think I
0: saw that on Wikipedia as well. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so you call to me and say, oh boy, you see me, I don't take my own shortcut. <laughs> now I want to meet those your bourgeois friends. <laughs> I was living here, I just opposite KPMG. Yeah, 8.50. That Bishop
1: uh,
0: of cool. yes. And uh, I hosted a big cocktail, brought all the captains of industry. Do you Legos still host together. these
1: cocktails? Let me meet the bourgeoisie as well. Um, oh, let me meet the bourgeoisie. Well. You know, funny how at the time, because of the whole Marxism movement, being a bourgeoisie seemed to be a bad thing. Now it's such an elite thing, everybody Easy. wants to be a, be a bourgeoisie. It's such an elite thing now.
0: <laughs> so, all the Chamber of Commerce, because I was on the Council of Lagos Chamber of Commerce and Industry, on the Council of Manufacturing Association of Nigeria, I was on the Council of NECA. All the, wow, brought all those people to come and meet the Yorcherius. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you really set him up. I, You're I, like, okay, I, you want to meet them? Mm, don't worry, I <laughs> got
0: you. Well, he was very happy. <laughs> uh, so. didn't upset me at all. The the problem people like Max is sad with me, normally when they attack you, people recoil and go back very you give me what I give you back, back back (laughs) (laughs) So after a while they they all just say this this guy is a bad man. (laughs) (laughs) Just leave him alone. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Understandable though. So what advice would you give people trying to enter politics right now the youth that are trying to actually enter the political space and be involved and hold positions
0: you must have the right motive
1: yeah
0: politics is about sacrificial giving of yourself for the good of a broader group Um, if you are driven by me myself and i if you are going there to Get power, to make money, take as much for as
1: yourself.
0: you can. Yeah. You're not gonna have impact that the sustainable. You might make something in the short term, but in the end, yeah. Unfortunately just a waste. Uh, so go with the right motive, go to serve. Recognize something that I said in nineteen ninety one. Interview again sitting in that a house nineteen ninety one. Um in interview, uh, I said, look, frivolously answer the question I was asked uh, uh, What is the purpose of being for you? Uh, like I said, flippantly just said, to live forever. The essence of being, the reason we were born, is to find ways to live forever. And that there are two levels of immortality. The first level I call material immortality, and that is to impact other people's lives, touch people such that long after you are gone, people still talk about you. And a classic example of the easiest way to live forever is to write. A great book mm,
1: yeah. and so
0: the kids read Shakespeare today and forget that a man died hundreds of years ago or I quote Machiavelli like he was my next door neighbor <laughs> but he died 500 years ago um, and the other immortality of course I like to refer to as spiritual immortality uh, people of faith look forward to seeing God face to face when that happens, you have attained spiritual immortality. Mm-hmm. Lucky is the man or woman who attains both material and spiritual immortality. Yeah.
1: That's a good one. That's actually, that makes a lot of sense. That actually makes a lot of sense. I agree. I agree though. I remember a lecture of man was... Just trying to engage the students because she could tell that they weren't just listening in (laughs) class, and so she decided to ask everybody, "What's your greatest fear?" Mm. And so many people, you know, not making it in life, not this, not that. And I remember just saying, like, not like having an impact, leaving this world and not having done anything. Then why? Yeah. Then why was I really here? You know, there's this thing, and I can't remember where I'm quoting this from. That they said the time you really there two times you die when you actually die and the last time someone ever mentions you or someone ever thinks about you and that's when you really die because nobody is thinking about you anymore and it's just like i don't ever want to not be remembered for something good for having impact in people's lives really so yeah um one of the final questions as we round up is how do you balance your social and family life with your career? Because you are a very, very busy man holding a lot of positions. How do you do that?
0: Um, so You have to be deliberate in some things. You, I mean, uh, this may change with age and time, uh, but I got lucky early to um, come to a realization that it was important to deliberately seek this kind of balance. And part of the way that I did it as a young person, much younger person, was to have some routines. Tuesday evenings, family evening. Everybody must have dinner together. Then we spent two, three hours after talking about everybody's issues. What's happened was latest in your life. Uh, when I first started it, when the kids were very young, it was kind of like funny. You know, especially uh, age difference between the kids. especially interested. Yeah. But it became a family tradition and allowed us to hold together some. And then, um, you know, um, once they got older, tried to find what it is about their uh, interest that you can engage them on. Um, There were times when I did a better job than other times. Yeah. Now that most of my children have uh, essentially grown, there's only one who's uh, last year entering last year uni. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So um, you know, I, I find that I obviously feel a little less guilty moving around. <laughs> uh, but I've been moving for most of my life.
1: Yeah. From uh, when you were born, actually.
0: <laughs> you know, biggest challenge that I've had has been travel. As a person, a matter of style, I'm not a night person. Oh,
1: okay.
0: I don't go out at night. So When I leave my office or wherever, 6.30, that's it. Now, when I was much younger, and this is, This became a Lagos uh, fable, a grave grave Lagos fable. (laughs) Um, When I was in industry and all of that, I could have five, six invitations to dinner, cocktail, one evening. Um, I would leave the office maybe at 5.30, something. Go to the first one. As they're starting the cocktail, I walk around, shake hands, shake hands, shake hands. 10, 15 minutes, I'm gone. I could do three of those and be home by 8 o'clock. And the next day in the newspapers, you will see me in five different places.
1: <laughs> I'm sure people were wondering, how does this man do it? The
0: one thing they probably also did not know was that I spent most of that evening at home with the family. Yeah. And uh, what it, people got to know, I mean, it's le- legendary now. When I come into a place, they say, okay, Pat will be out in five minutes. <laughs> yeah. So he became part of uh, the friend of ours uh, Tumba, Lawa He used to make a. He says, "You come to an event." He say, oh, Pat is not here." Ah, I see Pat. Yes, Pat. I'm going to catch up with Pat. Yes, Pat. Yes, Pat. Where is Pat? Pat's gone. <laughs> Pat is gone. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: so you just have to be intentional about it and make time for what's really important. Prioritize. Absolutely. I think the first thing it would, that would be important is to prioritize what comes first mm. and then arrange
0: accordingly. So it didn't matter how busy I was, so long mm. as I was in town, I spent time with the family Yeah. because I was deliberate about it.
1: Yeah.
0: But the trouble part was travel, Traveling a lot. Uh, only a couple of years ago, I tried to do... Just check what countries have I visited. Came to
1: 84 countries. 84? Yeah. Whoa. 84. That's so... 84?
0: 84 on all continents of the planet. Uh, That's at so the At the cool. time, I was worried. You know, I traveled <laughs> in so many countries, but not in Africa. Then suddenly, I began to do Africa. Bop, 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 bop. Bop, bop, bop,
1: Wow, I'm just thinking about it. Like eighty-four countries, and you spent like considerable time there. It was just like two hours here, two hours there. Yeah, two like two a viola.
0: <laughs> two hours. No. I mean, I am really going for a business meeting, a conference, or something. Three, four days. Wow. And yeah, of course, with Latin and, with Southeast Asia being a major destination for study as an academic. Um, I would have gone to a country like Malaysia at least 15 times. Whoa. I've been in Indonesia at least six, seven times.
1: Did you and actually enjoy these countries when you went there? Or were you just, like, there for work and you didn't really get to, you know, explore? I'm,
0: I'm not a good tourist. Oh? I mean, yeah. That's for someone that has gone to eight, four countries, that's so sad. I, 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 you know, I, <laughs> I tell you the day that I was really, really embarrassed. It's A friend of mine, an African-American... Called Malcolm Pryor, who actually ran what was at the point the biggest African American owned investment bank in the US. And Malcolm, apparently, lives in Philadelphia, but their head office in New York was on Water Street. Water Street is uh, Wall Street. And I don't know, like 15 years or so ago, I went to uh, his office in New York to meet with him. And then just behind him, I said, Oh my goodness. The Statue of Liberty. Said, yes, <laughs> I had never been to the Statue of Liberty, and I'd been coming to New York like every year for 30 years, and I'd never what? been to the Statue of Liberty. I was embarrassed, so I just made, so the following trip with the family, all of us just went to the Statue went of Liberty. Went to the Liberty. Statue of
1: Liberty. This boogie off my back. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I think I'm the ultimate tourist. I want to do everything. I want to see everywhere i just wish i could travel more and more like i <laughs> it was,
0: whoa it was the only company that made me i could have gone to china and go to china without going up the great wall of china <laughs> but i some company made me do it you know but that's
1: i mean that's i think that's the fun part of traveling around just enjoying it it won't say, i don't think it will be as stressful if you're actually just enjoying
0: my, it my travels, were not motivated by tourism, in their business
1: work yeah understandably so okay as we come to the end thank you so much sir uh, for being on i really appreciate it thank you very much yes it Uh, will be thank you very much thank you guys for listening bye till next episode